0: Hey there, I'm Ruby Jones, and welcome to 7am's Summer Series, an exploration of big ideas with some of our favourite contributors and thinkers. Australia's domestic security agency, ASIO, says that right wing extremism now makes up half of its priority cases, and the far right, while still fringe, has capitalised on division and social media to push its message during the pandemic. Of course, the world has already seen one great rise in the far-right movement in the 1930s. Deteriorating economies, poverty and plague were the precursors to the rise of fascist parties across the world back then. So just how big a risk is this movement today? And how did we allow this discredited and dangerous ideology to get a foothold once again? Today, author Lydia Khalil on how counter-terrorism turned a blind eye to the far-right and how we all need to solve that problem. So, Lydia, let's start by talking a bit about far-right extremism here in Australia. It's not something that we tend to speak about much, but one of the deadliest terror attacks in recent history was committed by an Australian man in Christchurch in New Zealand. We've also seen the emergence of small neo-Nazi groups more recently who've been attending protest rallies in Australia. So could you just paint a bit of a portrait for me of what we're seeing in terms of far-right extremism right now?
1: Sure. Uh, It's a good question because on one hand, it has been something that's been brought up in the news over recent years. Um, But at the same time, we haven't really had so much of a robust discussion about its presence in the Australian context, as you say. I think it's important to say, first of all, that, you know, these movements, because they are extremist movements that do espouse violence, almost by definition, they are fringe So it is a fringe segment of a society, but one that's presenting a growing threat to Australian society, a growing concern for security agencies. And it's also important to say, too, that while in the Australian context it might be relatively limited, this is a movement that's global, that's transnational, that it has different manifestations outside of Australia. And they're linked in a lot of ways. And the international far-right community and right-wing extremist community pays attention to what's happening in Australia influencers and leaders within the Australian right-wing extremist movements are influential overseas and have a presence overseas as well. So I think it's important also to tease out that international profile of Australian right-wing extremists. Mm.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about that, Lydia? Who are those Australian right-wing extremists and and how are they connected to a more global far-right movement?
1: Sure. Well, one of the things that we're really picking up on in terms of people who pay attention to these movements is that how much more it's becoming a transnational movement. We see, you know, right-wing extremist influencers in the Australian context, and I don't like to name them because I don't want to give them a platform particularly. You know, there's no need to increase their influence, (laughs) so to speak. But they have many followers, for example, online. They have these online influencer personas where people pay attention to what they're saying. Australia, which has experienced some of the most extreme lockdowns up to this point, is going into yet in more extreme lockdowns. This proves what I was saying. So, you'd have InfoWars, for example, out of the United States, kind of a notorious conspiracy minded far right media network that would have figures from Australia on their show talking about all sorts of different things. So, people pay attention to what's been going on in Australia, particularly during the pandemic context, but also the online presence of a lot of right-wing extremist influencers is strong.
0: Television in Australia, they've been doing a pretty good job in Australia, exposing that COVID came out of Wuhan, exposing this, though their government's been very oppressive.
1: And from that, they're getting a lot of exposure globally.
0: It's clear that events during the pandemic have really accelerated this type of thinking among some people, but... When we talk about right-wing extremism, these types of groups, they've been around for a long time, haven't they? They might have morphed, they might have been influenced by the pandemic, but they aren't new, are they?
1: People might not remember, but before the 9-11 attacks, the biggest threat really was coming from right-wing extremist groups, particularly in the US context. Before the 9-11 attacks, the biggest mass casualty terrorist attack was from a white nationalist white supremacist Timothy McVeigh on the Oklahoma City bombings. In the 9-11 era, after the September 11th attacks, counterterrorism became really the main national security priority in the United States, in countries like Australia and elsewhere. And a lot of that counterterrorism effort was focused on the jihadist threat.
0: The American people deserve to know the truth about President Obama's campaign to defeat the jihad. And the truth is, there is no campaign. We've told you about a number of homegrown jihadist plots and acts of violence in America. Well, last a month, more than 6,000 men joined the jihadists, some of them from Western nations. And it's not just adults. The extremists don't mind having the young fight for them, too, like this 13-year-old Belgian
1: boy. Then we saw the expansion of the jihadist threat after the Iraq War, certainly after the Syrian conflict, and with the flow of foreign fighters, and then the return of foreign fighters or people inspired by Islamic State to commit attacks. And so a lot of our attention was paid to countering violent jihadism. And in so doing, I think we took our eyes off the ball of a threat that has always been there from right-wing extremist groups. I mean, one of the most latent examples of that is something that I write about in my recent book, and I open with this anecdote, is that around 2010, I want to say, there was an individual in the United States who got into his little single-engine plane in Austin, Texas, took off, flew it, and slammed it right into a government building. And he wrote a manifesto, and he said that he was doing this because he was opposed to the government, and he was an anti-tax protester that was part of this broader patriot movement that was manifesting in the United States. And at the time, even though he conducted an attack almost exactly similar to the September 11th attacks, nobody called that terrorism. They said, oh, well, he was just a disturbed individual or he had a grudge against the IRS. It just totally obscured the fact that, no, this was a violent act meant to mobilize future violence that was done for a political and ideological goal, which is the textbook definition of terrorism. And so that's the clearest example that I can point to of the ways in which the threat from right-wing extremism was obscured, perhaps not taken as seriously as it should have. Certainly there were experts and some within various governments around the world who were paying attention to it and who were warning. But overall, I would say that the machinery of governments, particularly in Western democracies, Australia included, had taken its eyes off of that particular threat of right-wing extremism in, in that period. And now we're playing catch up. These are not new ideas or movements, but we've tended to study them and to look at them or to understand them more as national manifestations or local, like they kind of act locally within their own national contexts. I think that that's not correct anymore. And I don't think it was correct even in the past as well. So what do you
0: mean by that? Are there significant similarities between these types of extremist groups that we see in different countries? And and should we think of them more as a Connected network rather than as, as individual groups.
1: There's a lot of writing on the linkages between, say, the Hindutva movement, which is an extreme Hindu supremacist movement arisen out of India and is gaining more prominence, for example. You wouldn't think that they would have a lot in common, say, with a white supremacist group, but they have a commonality in their belief in some sort of ethnic or racial superiority over one group over another. Now, with the uptake of digital communications, increasing globalization, there's more of those transnational linkages between right-wing extremist movements on the globe. And I think more importantly and concerningly, we can see the connection between various right-wing extremist groups in terms of their ideas, how they think about the world and how they think about other people, and our shared humanity in terms of the ways that they reject it. We'll be back
0: after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass
1: in it. And then, like, the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill.
0: I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Can we unpack some of the the similarities between these different movements in different countries taking perhaps... Hindu extremism, what does that have in common with what you might see here in Australia? Is it an extension of the same ideas? Are they borrowing
1: from the same playbook? Is it the rhetoric? What is it that you think links them? Well, I think we have to go back to definitions. And I like to use a definition that was put forward by a scholar called Elizabeth Carter. And she says that right-wing extremism is a manifestation of an anti-democratic opposition to equality. So it means that these movements are inherently anti-democratic, they're authoritarian and fascist in nature, and they're also opposed to equality, meaning that they believe in hierarchies among individuals, in groups and out groups, that there is an in-group that they are a part of that's inherently better or superior to another group. And a lot of times that manifests itself in terms of hatred or violence or vilification very common groups that are often the targets or the enemies of right-wing extremists globally, Muslims, feminists, LGBTQI, other minority groups, depending on the context of the nation. But certainly Islamophobia is one of the big things that unites a lot of right-wing movements across the globe. Anti-Semitism is a huge one, and they also tend to believe in similar conspiracy theories as well.
0: On the face of it, QAnon is a Trump-era conspiracy theory. It's basically an ever-expanding web of madness designed to make Trump look as if he's fighting a secret global movement of evil child killers.
1: —One of the, the main ones is this New World Order type of conspiracy where they believe there's this global elite, a global cabal that kind of controls all the mechanisms of politics and power throughout the world.
0: —These bunch of sex-trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed! These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood. inside job uh, people in our government
1: who are working towards a deep state, who are trying to keep us controlled. Children are being
0: har- harvested, children are being farmed yeah. for adrenochrome yeah. by celebrities.
1: It was easier to believe
0: that there was someone, something out there to get you, and that's why my life was as bad as it was.
1: They are seeking to subjugate the majority ethnic group of the particular country. And so they believe in these similar type of conspiracy theories that animate their narratives and their recruitment strategies and their political programs.
0: Mm. And when we talk about the transnational far right, can... We speak a bit more about the political conditions that have allowed this to be something that
1: is appearing right now. Absolutely. It's one of those things that I'm really concerned about and is kind of the focus of a lot of my work in that, yes, we do need to understand these as extreme and fringe movements, but they're both a cause and a symptom of this global democratic decline that we're seeing. Australia, in a lot of ways, is insulated from this, but at the same time... We're not completely isolated from those dynamics. You're starting to see this democratic decline, not only in kind of emerging democracies, but also in what political scientists call consolidated democracies. Chief example is what's happening in the United States right now with that increased polarization.
0: This increasingly dark view of the opposition has now become a dominant feature of the American political landscape.
1: The Trump presidency, the belief in the big lie that the elections were stolen, If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. We're seeing a lack of trust in democracy among citizens.
0: Among Americans born in the 1930s, 72% said that living in a democracy was essential. Among those born in the 1980s, the number is 30%
1: competition between democracies and authoritarian states in the geostrategic environment. And when we're talking about it in the political context, they're getting a lot of legitimization from the populist far-right political leaders. So I say that that is the bridge between these violent and radical revolutionary groups and the broader democratic decline. That bridge is the populist far-right from leaders that we've recently seen elected, like in the Italian elections, the incoming Prime Minister Maloney, for example, or Viktor Orban in Hungary, or a president like Trump.
0: Mm. And these are figures who have been democratically elected, but is the goal of the fringe far right to
1: erode democracy altogether? They're very happy to participate in democratic processes to gain power, but they don't have a commitment to what we would call liberal democracy. In that they are happy to use elections to come to power, but they don't have the ethos of liberalism the way that it's classically understood. They don't have those values. So Orban in Hungary is a great example of this dynamic. He was elected to come into power. He has maintained his power through elections, but he's eroded the democratic institutions of Hungary to the point now where the EU has said that Hungary is not even a democracy It just shows us that elections are not enough. We have to have the commitment to democratic principles and norms as well.
0: Mm, That shows what's at stake,
1: though. Exactly. And so we have to expand our thinking in ways that this is not just about counterterrorism operations. It's not just about disrupting plots or disrupting particular cells. This is a broader societal issue that we need to tackle with broader understanding, greater commitment to egalitarianism and democratic governance, multiculturalism, historical education, all sorts of things like that. Mm. Lydia, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Mementa. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at SydneyDanceCompany.com.